0: Welcome, and thank you for joining us for another episode of KPMG's Inside International Tax, a podcast devoted to recent developments, observations, and trends related to U.S. international tax. I'm your host, Gary Scanlon, a principal in KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice, and formerly an attorney advisor at the Treasury Department. This is the first of a three-part exploration of the international tax provisions in the Biden administration's revenue proposals that accompanied its FY22 budget, the so-called Green Book. This first episode will focus on the proposals in the Green Book that are most important to foreign multinationals with U.S. operations, that is, the Green Book's inbound proposals. The second episode will focus on the Green Book's outbound proposals, particularly guilty. And in the third, we will explore the Green Book's anti-inversion proposals. Today, I'm excited to be joined by two of my colleagues, Danielle Rolfus and Doug Palms. Danielle is a partner and co-leader of KPMG's WNT International Tax Practice. Doug is a principal in the same group. Both Danielle and Doug formerly served as International Tax Counsel, or ITC, in the Office of Tax Policy at the Treasury Department and each is formally my boss at Treasury. Danielle and Doug, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thanks, Gary. (laughs) Thank you, Gary. Great to be here.
0: Danielle and Doug, you've both worked on green books in your past lives at Treasury. Indeed, before this one, you produced the most recent green books. Danielle, I've heard this year's green book described as the most important green book published in a generation. Do you agree with that, or is that mere hyperbole?
2: Well, maybe. Um, I think the general belief is that Democrats are very likely to pass a major tax bill this year. That would be in accord with most presidents' first year in office when the same party controls both houses of Congress. The Green Book, of course, is the Biden administration's opportunity to frame what it thinks that legislation should look like. But as I think we've all observed We don't have a parliamentarian system. So it really is Congress that will ultimately need to figure out what it can pass. And in particular, how to get that 51st vote in our closely divided Senate, not to mention the margins aren't high in the House either. Now, that said, I think there is another point that's unique about this Green Book, which is that all the interactions and inspiration that the Green Book draws from the OECD's work and here it is the administration not congress that's leading those discussions at the OECD so perhaps those interactions give the administration's perspectives additional weight this year
0: so clearly the green book does not exist in a vacuum you mentioned the OECD work the so-called beps 2.0 indeed a bit of a bit over a week ago there was an important development related to this work The countries of the G7 agreed to a minimum tax rate of at least 15%. We've talked about BEPs 2.0 and its proposed two-pillar solution in a previous episode of the podcast. Specifically, Pillar 1 would reallocate certain residual profits of very large and profitable multinationals to market jurisdictions, while Pillar 2 would create a global minimum tax rate. And mechanisms to top up taxes paid in low-tax jurisdictions. These mechanisms include the so-called income inclusion rule, or IIR, which is similar to our guilty, and the undertaxed payments rule, or UTPR, which backstops the IIR. The UTPR has sometimes been compared to our B, but as it will become more clear throughout this episode, the similarity is very superficial. In any case, the Green Book proposes to replace the BEAT with the SHIELD. Danielle, where does the SHIELD fit in with the work at the OECD?
2: So I, I think the SHIELD draws its inspiration and, in fact, many of its detailed mechanics from those Pillar 2 rules, the undertax payment rule. That you were just describing. And I know it's a lot of acronyms, but I think international tax professionals are going to have to get comfortable with this UTPR, under tax payment rule, and IIR, income inclusion rule, at the OECD, as I think we're going to be talking about it extensively going forward. When we read the thumbnail description of SHIELD, going back to when we just had the Made in America tax plan, the narrative from the Biden administration of a few weeks ago, I think when many of us read that description of SHIELD, We didn't realize how similar S.H.I.E.L.D. was to the OECD's under-tax payment rule. But the Green Book has made it clear that S.H.I.E.L.D. is essentially the U.S. version of the under-tax payment rule, with, of course, a few U.S.-centric twists. I say that because I think especially for those that haven't dug into the OECD's under-tax payment rule, and there is a ton of detailed work that has been done at the OECD to develop that rule behind that rule. The S.H.I.E.L.D. can be really eye-popping in its reach and its potential for complexity. It's kind of hard to understand S.H.I.E.L.D.'s ambitions, if a tax proposal can have ambitions without understanding that the groundwork, the foundation for that has been laid in the OECD's work on the under-taxed payment rule. Another interaction with the OECD work is that S.H.I.E.L.D. has the stated intent of incentivizing other countries to reach consensus on a global minimum tax at the OECD, the IIR or the income inclusion rule. The idea is that if a company is headquartered in a jurisdiction that applies a strong IIR on all its income earned outside the parent jurisdiction, then it Shield wouldn't apply to payments to CFCs of that company. Shield and the under-tax payment rule are also, in a sense, anti-inversion rules. The countries participating at the OECD recognize that even if there's great success and there's widespread adoption of IIRs by most headquarters jurisdictions, a risk would remain that a multinational enterprise could escape pillar two by inverting to an accommodating jurisdiction that doesn't apply an IIR. Essentially, it just takes one. (laughs) Recognizing this risk, the OECD developed the under-tax payment rule as a necessary backstop mechanism to the IIR. Accordingly, the design of the UTPR at the OECD is for source jurisdictions to collect the same amount of top-up tax from a multinational enterprise that would have been collected if an IIR had in fact been imposed on all its foreign income by the, by the home country of its parent company. So in that sense, the UTPR really is designed as a backstop to the income inclusion rule. And the notion at the OECD at least is that essentially the same amount of tax would get collected under this alternative mechanism. SHIELD deviates somewhat from this design perhaps to be a bit more punishing of companies that are headquartered in countries without an IIR. I think S.H.I.E.L.D. is maybe more intent on this goal of incentivizing the adoption of income inclusion rules so that companies will go begging their own country jurisdiction, please adopt an IIR because SHIELD is, is so complex and punitive. I mean, I think the undertax payment rule is also by definition more complex and companies would, if they have the choice between a comprehensive application of an undertax payment rule by all the source jurisdictions in which they operate versus an income inclusion rule, the idea is that companies and countries should all prefer the income inclusion rule approach. I think there are some situations, though, where Shield doesn't would actually collect more tax, more than the U.S. a share of that top-up tax, and in that sense, it's prompted some to call Shield a little bit more of a sword than a shield as part of this express design to incent countries to adopt income inclusion rules.
0: So it sounds like Shield would bring the U.S. largely in line with the OECD's work on the UTPR, but not totally but it is just an administration proposal. There was no sign of it in Senator Wyden's framework for reforming the international tax system, which would instead make modest changes to the B. Isn't B in and of itself problematic at the OECD?
2: Indeed. The B is not liked by countries at the OECD. First, leaving aside the work on pillar two, B arguably violates the anti-discrimination clause of our treaties, which prohibits denying deductions solely on account of the foreign status of a recipient. That hasn't gone unnoticed by our treaty partners who have called that out, including in a letter uh, shortly after the BEAT entered the stage. Along those same lines, if we now focus on the discussions at the Pillar 2, BEAT is arguably inconsistent with the Pillar 2 arrangement, which is that high-taxed income should not be subject to an undertax payment rule. But importantly, that income that is subject to an income inclusion rule should not be subject to an under-tax payment rule. That is, you know, as I've noted, the undertax payment rule is intended to operate as a secondary rule. Countries have agreed that it should only apply as a last resort when low-taxed income is not subject to an income inclusion rule. BEAT, of course, denies deductions regardless of the tax treatment of the recipient. And so it's perceived by some countries as a unilateral measure, you know, and and one definition they're using of a unilateral measure is essentially outside the construct of our treaties, at least violating the spirit of the treaties, a a unilateral measure that ought to be rolled back as part of a deal at the OECD, uh, akin to the U.S. ask that digital services taxes be rolled back.
0: Besides OECD considerations, any other reasons that Treasury would want to replace the BEAT with the Shield?
2: I think as a domestic policy matter, BEAT is widely understood to have missed its mark in terms of leveling the playing field between inbound and outbound companies. The fact that BEAT only denies you know, deductions and does not apply to payments that are included in cost of goods sold was specifically called out by the Biden administration as just one reason for this. On the other hand, a big complaint is that the beat applies equally to outbound companies. And in many ways, it's more punitive for outbound companies. When all is said and done, I think the shield, on the other hand, is expected to just apply to foreign parented companies. And the design is to be more targeted on leveling the playing field. You know, as another Point of why would Treasury want to replace Beat with Shield? The Treasury economists have estimated that replacing Beat with Shield would raise almost four hundred billion over nine years. That is a big tempting price tag for a Treasury that's trying to pay for a multi-trillion dollar infrastructure package.
0: So, in honor of the imminent U.S.-Russian summit and the great Russian author Fyodor Dostoevsky, let's talk Crime and Punishment. First, the crime. When does the SHIELD apply?
2: SHIELD would apply whenever two conditions are met. The first is you have any gross payment to a related party. That gross payment doesn't need to be deductible. It would include, for example, cost of goods sold or amounts that are going to be capitalized. And the second requirement is that the financial statements of that consolidated group include income that on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis is not subject to a sufficiently high etr so under the proposal the measure for you know what's a sufficiently high etr would initially be set at the guilty rate which in biden's proposal is 21% although it could land somewhere different but if there is agreement at the oecd the biden administration expressly contemplates that this rate for measuring whether income is low tax would adjust to the OECD agreed rate before, as you noted um, recently. Seven very important countries have suggested that OECD agreed rate ought to be at least 15%. Those are just seven countries. There's a lot of discussions at the OECD, so it'll be interesting to see where that lands. But note that I did not say that the payment needed to be to an entity that is itself subject to low tax. A payment to a high tax entity. Will trigger the application of shield if there is any low taxed income in the group. So another point to make, I've highlighted, you know, the rate measurement for whether income is low taxed. Another point to emphasize is this is an effective tax rate test. It's nominal. The statutory rate in the country isn't relevant. We're going to dig into how much tax is actually paid on the income. Obviously, because this is a provision that's pointed at inbound companies, the U.S. cannot require foreign-parented companies to determine their income in every jurisdiction using U.S. tax principles in order to test for whether there's any jurisdiction with low-taxed income. To overcome this, and this is consistent with the way the undertax payment rule works at the OECD, SHIELD would look to financial reporting profits before taxes sorted by jurisdiction, and to the amount of taxes that are paid or accrued with respect to each country. And measuring the taxes that are paid or accrued with respect to each country, the Green Book doesn't actually provide any detail of how that would occur. But Treasury officials have recently indicated that that measure would turn on U.S. tax concepts. So it seems likely the numerator of the effective tax rate calculation would include, for example, local country, net basis taxes, and source-based withholding taxes that are paid or accrued with respect to the income that's assigned to that country um, within the meaning of Section 901 and Section 903 and the U.S. concepts of when a tax is paid or accrued. So in that sense, it's a bit of a hybrid. The numerator is U.S. tax concepts. The denominator, financial reporting concepts. I mentioned that any intercompany payment will be subject to SHIELD if there is any low-taxed income in the group. The mechanic for achieving that is that payments to a high-tax entity are deemed made to low-tax entities in the group based on the group's proportionate amount of low taxed income. So I think this is a point that only came out in the green book. I think when we first read the description, we wondered would there be conduit principles or how would you maybe trace through payments to determine if that payment was ultimately low taxed? No, there's no need for any tracing. This is not a conduit principle. This is just pure math. It's a ratio. Is there any low taxed income in the group? What percentage of the group's income is low taxed? That percentage would be applied to any related party payment, gross payment that is made to a high taxed entity to deem a portion of that payment to be low taxed.
0: Okay. On to the punishment. What happens if the shield applies?
2: So first start with payments that are made to low taxed entities. In the case of a payment that's made to an entity that is, you know, formed a resident in a jurisdiction that is low tax, the S.H.I.E.L.D. would disallow that deduction entirely. That is different than the way the undertax payment rule works, which we've mentioned undertax payment rule at the OECD is just trying to collect the amount of top up tax that otherwise would have been collected if an income inclusion rule applied. SHIELD instead is a cliff effect. So if I make a payment to a low tax entity, I am gonna deny the deduction for that payment. And it's gonna be irrespective of whether maybe some foreign taxes were paid in the recipient jurisdiction. That doesn't matter, it's not a top up, I'm denying. And I'm not just denying up to the minimum rate. Remember the US rate is gonna be set at a rate that's higher than this SHIELD cutoff rate. But if I make a payment to a low taxed entity, I'm gonna lose the full value of that deduction, you know, at the full US statutory rate. So this is the sense that I emphasized at the top and said SHIELD has some aspects that are a little more punitive than the under tax payment rule. And this cliff effect, I would point to as number one in that respect. Also, SHIELD does not disallow cost of goods sold or other capitalized amounts. Instead, it disallows other deductions an equal amount to make up for that. So you make a payment for a related party payment for COGS. I'm not going to deny your cost of goods sold, but I'm just going to go look for any other deduction in the group. It could be a deduction with respect to a payment to an unrelated person and just deny that deduction up to the amount of the non-deductible payments that were actually made to a low-taxed entity. Or that were deemed made to a low tax entity by applying that ratio.
0: Why doesn't the shield just disallow COGS?
2: Evidently, there is a potential constitutional issue with denying COGS. I query though whether, if it really is a constitutional issue, this kind of end run would actually work.
0: So, there is no COGS exception to the shield. Are there any exceptions? Should U.S. multinationals be concerned, for instance?
2: Well, first, no specific exemptions are explicitly provided in the Green Book. B had a number of exceptions. You'll recall the important exception for the services, for payments that were eligible for the services cost method. It's highly unlikely that that kind of exception would be replicated here. A literal read of the S.H.I.E.L.D. suggests that it would even apply to payments between two domestic entities. Presumably, if they were part of the same consolidated group, the consolidated return rules might apply. But at least where they're not members of the same consolidated group, the S.H.I.E.L.D. literally would apply to payments between two domestic entities. The proposal does include a grant of regulatory authority to exempt payments on a jurisdiction-by-jurisdiction basis. In particular, we would expect, hope, that the Treasury contemplates here that they would potentially develop a whitelist of good income inclusion rules that they have determined are effective, strong global minimum tax regimes for turning SHIELD off. So if they're going to start identifying good IIRs, then I think consistent with that, One would certainly expect that guilty regime, as reformed by the Biden administration, would be on that list. So that you asked about, you know, U.S. parented companies. Assuming there's just one U.S. consolidated group, I think there's good reason to expect that any payment by members of that group to CFCs would be accepted because guilty and presumably also Sub F would be identified as good in income inclusion rules that would turn SHIELD off. But they haven't written those regs yet or even really said that as clearly as they could have. So, you know, I I think we have to wait and see. So if broad
0: consensus is reached on Pillar 2 and Treasury provides an exemption from the SHIELD for payments to entities subject to a qualifying IAR, wouldn't that pretty much resolve all our concerns?
2: Wouldn't that be nice? I think the issue is you still have to consider payments to the ultimate parent. So income inclusion rules, you know, like most CFC rules you would expect would not apply to income that's either income of the parent or income of other affiliates of the parent that are resident in the same jurisdiction as the parent. So it seems without something else, even if every country has adopted a good IAR, we would still have to test payments to the jurisdiction of the parent. Now at the OECD, there has been some discussion of the possibility of even a whitelist of good parent jurisdictions. That seems politically very difficult for the OECD to go through and you know, assess all the R&D incentives and everything that a jurisdiction might have to conclude that income should be always subject to an effective tax rate that meets the, the agreed rate. But there is at least some contemplation of that as a possibility. But I think we definitely have to wait and see on that one. I wouldn't assume that's a foregone conclusion.
0: You mentioned that the shield is an effective tax rate test. What aspects of calculating shield ETR will taxpayers likely need further guidance on?
2: So we talked about the fact that the numerator is essentially cash taxes paid or accrued under us concepts but the denominator is expected to be financial reporting income. I think that denominator would need to be more fully fleshed out in U.S. guidance. Uh, The proposal contemplates that Treasury would be given broad authority to address some book tax differences and net operating losses to account for timing differences. And here, remember, we're going to be focused on timing differences, not between U.S. tax rules and the Financial reporting rules, but rather the local country tax rules and the financial reporting rules. And extensive work has been done at the OECD around, you know, which timing differences would it be appropriate to take into account. And at least at the OECD, there is general agreement to address timing differences between local tax rules and financial reporting, due, for example, to bonus depreciation and stock-based comp. They would also, at the OECD at least, allow unlimited carryovers of NOLs. The Green Book proposal doesn't get into any of that detail. They do explicitly mention that they contemplate some kind of relief for NOLs, but it looks like, at least as of the proposal, We'd have to look to regulations to sort of build out maybe some of those rules to account for book tax differences. And ho- hopefully, there'd be significant relaxation to accommodate that. This is all, I, I just note as an aside, much more generous than the Green Book's guilty proposal, which provides no relief from guilty's harsh annual accounting, including no carryovers whatsoever. The proposal provides no guidance as well on how to assign income and taxes to jurisdictions. Financial statements obviously are generally not done on a jurisdiction by jurisdiction basis. So there need to be perhaps guidance work to develop some constraints around how companies sift their income into each different country.
0: Danielle, who would be subject to the shield and how is this different than the BEAT and the UTPR?
2: So the shield would apply to any financial reporting group. You know, you need to be a company that does public financial statements. You need some U.S. nexus, so at least one domestic corporation, domestic partnership, or a U.S. trader business in that group, and the group as a whole would need to report more than $500 million in global annual revenue on the consolidated financial statement. It's important this $500 million global revenue. Might sound familiar because B also has a $500 million revenue threshold, but important difference, B only takes into account gross receipts with a U.S. nexus, whereas SHIELD is applying this $500 million based on the global revenue, so considering all revenue reported in the consolidated financial statements. Another difference is that BEAT would only apply if a base erosion percentage test is met. So for most companies outside of financial services, you have to have more than 3% of your deductions be related party deductions. SHIELD, in contrast, would apply to the very first dollar of related party payment, whether deductible or not, if there is any low taxed income anywhere in the group. So, that important filter for many companies that turns BEAT off is not at all available in SHIELD. So, I think absent a widespread adoption of income inclusion rules, potentially there are substantially more taxpayers that would be subject to SHIELD. So, I've contrasted SHIELD with BEAT, and now I'll turn to contrasting the threshold for applying SHIELD to the threshold for applying the under tax payment rule at the OECD. It's notable that at the OECD they've agreed to a 750 million euro cutoff for that revenue threshold for the application of the under tax payment rule. The Green Book doesn't give any explanation for having gone with a significantly less amount. I mean, 750 million euro is almost one billion dollars and the Green Book cuts that in half and proposes to apply SHIELD using a 500 million dollar revenue cutoff. Presumably they get significantly more revenue out of the score for having that difference, um, but it is not explained.
0: What do you make of the SHIELD's perspective effective date? That is, it's proposed to apply to tax years beginning in 2023.
2: It's not explained in the Green Book, but I think it's pretty obvious that they're contemplating allowing sufficient time for other jurisdictions to actually adopt income inclusion rules. I think what's interesting about that is it suggests that BEAT would operate in its current form during the intervening year. And that is interesting because at the OECD, they're currently also talking about what is the timing to roll back relevant unilateral measures. The U.S. would like to see other countries roll back digital services taxes and similar unilateral measures upon reaching agreement. And some other countries have said, well, we think we should wait until the U.S. has adopted all of these provisions into your laws. So I think that's interesting because if BEAT continues to operate in its current form, that could affect those negotiations.
0: Thanks, Danielle. Now I want to turn to Doug to discuss the Green Book proposal that would limit the deduction for excessive interest for disproportionate borrowing in the United States. I guess IDBUS isn't some type of medieval weapon, so it wasn't deemed suitable as an acronym. Who and or what is this proposal intended
1: to target? Well, Gary, I mean, I, as far as the acronym goes, IDBUS would be odd, but it, if Treasury was looking for an acronym, you could use Oedipus by just changing the the B for borrowing to, to P for principle. But that's just... Something to throw out there in case they're looking for an acronym. But to answer your question about the intended target, the target is U.S. subsidiaries of foreign parent groups that are considered to have disproportionate net interest expense as compared to the rest of the group outside the United States and you base that determination of proportionality on relative EBITDA between the United States and the rest of the world. Similar to what Danielle was talking about with SHIELD and and determining which companies are caught, here we would also use financial statements. So this proposal would be limited to multinational groups that prepare public consolidated financial statements that would be in accordance with IFRS or GAAP or some other method that's identified in regulations. But unlike S.H.I.E.L.D., which had the, the $500 million threshold, there would be no revenue threshold. However, there is a amount of interest expense type threshold for the U.S. group. So the U.S. group would have to have at least $5 million of net interest expense shown on U.S. tax returns. Some people
0: have been referring to this proposal as one, Section 163N, which is the provision that was proposed and ultimately rejected as part of the TCJA. Is that the right way to think about this provision, Doug?
1: No, Gary, I, I think Treasury officials would tell us to specifically not call this proposal a 163N proposal. There are significant differences between the 163N proposal and the current Green Book proposal. And the most notable difference is that, as I said earlier, the Green Book proposal would only limit interest deductions of foreign parented groups. By contrast, the 163N proposal would apply to both U.S.-parented multinational groups and foreign-parented multinational groups. And there are other differences, like 163N would allow 110% of the calculated proportion in that interest expense, while the Green Book proposal is just 100%. There's no uplift of 10%. There's difference in the carryover rules and the thresholds that get you into the rule. Uh, The Green Book proposal is most similar to the prior Green Book proposals during the Obama era and less similar to the 163N in that sense. But it's interesting to note that in the last four administrations, going back to George W. Bush, there have been some form of this type of interest limitation proposal that looks to the amount of leverage in the United States versus the rest of the world. So you'd think that somehow this proposal is going to get enacted at some point If it keeps coming back, but we'll have to see.
0: Well, due to the similarity between this proposal and the Obama era Green Book proposals, some of our colleagues have started calling the proposal 163 Obama. Whatever you call it, how is this limitation determined?
1: This proposal is based on starting with the financial reporting group's total interest expense. So, this is your interest expense as a group for financial reporting purposes and looking to what portion of that worldwide expense would be represented by the U.S. subgroup by looking at the apportioned amount of the U.S. subgroup's share of EBITDA. So you're starting with financial statement numbers, you're looking at the total interest expense, and you're saying, well, how much of that relates to the U.S. group? You're going to base that on the relative amount of EBITDA in the United States versus the global group. Once you figure out that amount, you compare it to the actual financial statement interest expense for the U.S. subgroup. And if there's an excessive amount, then whatever that percentage of excessive amount is, you multiply that by the U.S. subgroup's tax net interest expense and determine the amount disallowed. So you start with financial statements to determine excessiveness, and you use that ratio or percentage to figure out how much of the U.S. tax amount to disallow using a consistent fraction or, or percentage. Now, the Green Book proposal also has an alternative way to calculate the disallowed interest expense by applying a, a similar limitation to 163J, but but at 10% of adjusted taxable income instead of the 30% in, in 163J. So it just follows the 163J statute at a lower threshold. Now, the reason for providing for this alternative proposal is the recognition that some foreign parent taxpayers wouldn't want to undergo all these computations using financial statements and would not want to have to provide the supporting info for the, the more complicated proportional interest proposal. Doug, why is the
0: limitation based on financial, the financial reporting group's EBITDA as opposed to U.S. taxable income or some other measure? And are there any issues with using EBITDA?
1: First of all, why is EBITDA being used as the measure of proportionality? Well, that um, is consistent with the 2016 and 2017 Obama Green Books. And it also is an approach that was used at the OECD and BEPS Action 4. And using EBITDA was viewed as an effective way to target earnings stripping, which makes sense. If the focus in the target is matching up your interest to your earnings, so... Uh, it makes sense to look at your portion amount of earnings in the United States. Now, why would you use financial statement numbers, proportionality, rather than U.S. tax numbers? And that goes back, again, to something Daniel was talking about with Shield, because it, when you have a calculation involving you inbound companies, you can't ask them to compute their global EBITDA or whatever the uh, relative amount is based on US tax concepts that you, you have to use something that all countries could agree to, which is audited financial statement numbers. Now, what are the concerns about using EBITDA as an approach? EBITDA can be quite volatile, and we've seen that especially in the past couple of years, first during the pandemic and then now after coming out of the pandemic, there's a lot of volatility in earnings, which shows that it is a very unstable frame of reference for these calculations. So, query whether other measures to assess proportionality should be considered that are more stable. And some of the prior proposals that we spoke about, like Bush's proposal in 2004 and the Senate's version of 163N look to uh, balance sheet type approaches. And even the U.S. in some of our interest allocation rules like 882-5 for U.S. branches of foreign companies or 861-9 foreign tax credit limitation purposes looks to assets as a way for the allocation of interest. And another thing to consider with EBITDA is it does not work well when some of the members of the group have losses.
0: Would the proposal allow a carry forward for the amount of any excess limitation and or disallowed interest expense?
1: Yes, so a favorable thing about the Green Book proposal, it, it provides that disallowed interest expense can be carried forward indefinitely. It also expressly contemplates excess limitation carry forward, but it's unclear what the duration of that carry forward would be for the excess limitation piece. It's interesting the Green Book mentions that there would be excess limitation carry forward, but it, it says that would be discussed further below in the Green Book write-up, but it actually never is addressed further below, so there was some kind of glitch there. How would this proposal
0: interact with the limitation under Section 163J?
1: Both this new Green Book proposal and 163J would apply concurrently, and taxpayers would have to take the more restrictive of the two provisions. So whatever, uh, between 163J and the Green Book, this allows the most interest would be the provision that would apply. That's consistent with most of the prior proposals. However, it's interesting to note that the OECD BEPS Action 4 recommendation would have encouraged countries to allow the greater of the two between a fixed ratio like one sixty three j and a group ratio like the green book approach. so interesting to note. but that but this propo- the green book proposal is the most restrictive of the two. Uh, as far as the coordination between the two, the Green book would provide Treasury with regulatory authority to to coordinate one sixty three j with these this new proposal. And the last thing I'll note in there in about one sixty three j is that. It's scheduled to change from an EBITDA approach, meaning earnings before interest taxes, depreciation and amortization, to just an EBITDA approach. So no more ad bags for depreciation and amortization starting next year, which is a significant change. Now, many have speculated that there will be some legislation that would defer that change over, but we have yet to see that, and we'll just have to see if that happens. And what's interesting is that the fact of the switchover from EBIT to EBIT was clearly on the minds of the treasury when they scored this proposal because the score for such a major debt proposal was a very low eighteen point six billion over the ten year window. And that's largely because the scoring had to assume that this new change for EBIT to EBIT would occur next year, which would make one sixty three j much more potent and therefore, this new proposal wouldn't have as much bite as a result.
0: Do you think Treasury will withdraw the 3D5 regs if the Green Books excessive interest proposal is enacted?
1: Treasury officials have indicated both during the Obama administration, when when the Green Books came out then with this type of proposal, and during the Trump administration when 163N was on the table. Treasury officials observed then, at least informally, that if a proportionate leverage rule like the Green Book proposal was adopted that the 385 regs, particularly Dash 3 and Dash 4, could be withdrawn because the new proposal would be addressing the same earnings stripping concerns. And in addition, you would need the ability to facilitate allowing companies to adjust their capital structures to have the desired net proportionate leverage if the Green Book proposal was enacted. So Dash 3 and Dash 4 would be a hindrance to that.
0: Thanks, Doug. And thanks, Danielle, both of you for joining us today and all of you for tuning in. In our next episode of the podcast, Danielle and Doug will rejoin me to discuss the Green Book proposals that would primarily impact U.S. multinationals. The Outbound Proposals. Until our next episode, take care.